if Calgarians want me to sit quietly and take all of that and just increase your taxes and say, I'm sorry, that's what the province said, then I'm not your candidate. If you want a candidate that fights back and says, why am I sending you 40% of our property taxes when you're actually not doing anything with it that's benefiting you know, my citizens, then you need someone who will fight for that. And that's what I'm prepared to do. And if we have not learned through COVID that this particular party is not interested in governing or showing any kind of leadership, if we haven't clued into the fact that not a single member of that government has any remorse over the number of people that are dying every day from COVID, then I don't think we're ever going to wake up. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. We acknowledge that the Forgotten Corner occupies unceded Indigenous land acknowledge that the Blackfoot Confederacy never, Confederacy never surrendered their land in the signing of Treaty 7, but agreed to share it. The Forgotten Corner sits on Treaty 7 and Treaty 4 territory, traditional lands of the Siksika, Kainai, Pakani, Stony Nakoda, and Sutina, as well as the Cree, Sioux, and the Soto brands of the Ojibwa peoples. We also honor and acknowledge that we are on the Métis Nation within Region 3. My name is Scott Schmidt. I am your co-host. I am here alongside my co-host, Jeremy Appel. Jeremy, how are you today? And it's the first time I'm seeing you in like three weeks. And thank you so much for hosting shows for me on my absence. It was just one. It was just the telethon one. Roberta hosted the uh, first okay. uh, book club. You were uh, at it. Episode. You attended. But uh, thanks for listening. Uh- uh, yeah, I, I sorry, fuck me for being having something else to deal with over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, hey man, I, I get it. Um, <laughs> no, which was great by the way. Uh, first episode of Book Club, uh, really recommend uh, you listeners uh, pick up Tyler Shipley's Canned in the World and read along with us. We're going slow. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I, I mean, I'm fine, I'm whatever, I'm uh booked my flight back to Toronto, uh, for a few, in a few weeks. So, uh, that'll be my first time visiting in two years. I've never been away that's crazy talk. that long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. Um, you know, I'm just finishing up my work, uh, for the sprawl covering the share of this election, which, uh, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll get to shortly, but, yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. Good. Good. That's good to hear. I had to uh like refigure out how to do this show. Like my brain wasn't working very good. I forgot like what we say and when and like who does what. And I I haven't really known like what day it was in a few weeks here. So but anyway, uh I wrote about it at today's column. So most people are gonna know anyway, but my parents were in a like pretty awful car accident in BC on the highway on the 17th of September, which was like the day before we were supposed to do the telethon. Right. And I had already set up, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd been involved in organizing everything we were going to do. I just couldn't actually be there to do it uh, for obvious reasons. Anyways, my parents are on the mend and going to be okay. Mom broke pretty much fucking everything like clavicle ribs, uh, multiple fractures in her pelvis and she had a surgical break in her femur so it was basically her right side got smashed up dad broke seven ribs had like a little tear in his liver he had faces pretty cut up and then his knees pretty blown apart they're MRIing it but now that he's home in medicine hat and he'll find out like what needs to be repaired but anyway super lucky to be alive nothing and it all could have gone worse and it was a fucking weird feeling to be like relieved 
that your parents are a thousand no like relieved that they were a thousand kilometers away i mean yeah we came to the bike at at first like i I wasn't sure if they needed icus or what right we didn't know like i didn't know quite how hurt they were when i first found out which wasn't true they needed they went to the trauma ward but they weren't in icu at any point anyway so we did we did get that lucky feeling of like okay they're they're not life-threatening injuries they're just like long recovery injuries for people that are in their early 70s but when you have to like it 2021 and you got to be fucking relieved that your parents got hurt a thousand kilometers from home it's weird like it was just an odd feeling like because i had literally that day uh spoken to somebody who's close to the hospital situation who said like it's so fucking bad here like you do not want to get hurt for anything right now like keep your family at home kind of thing and i was like yeah absolutely i'll tell and they, they're like you should tell everyone you got a bigger platform and i was like all right i'll tell everybody to stay home meanwhile right like it's literally not even like an hour or two later that that happens so fucking crazy right so anyway uh be safe out there you guys it's like we're really at that point where the hospitals are so bad that they, people aren't getting care. I saw a story this morning of somebody saying it was Red Deer, I think. Red Deer Hospital, uh, their dad died waiting for an ICU bed that was filled with COVID patients. And he needed an ICU for a non-COVID reason. Like I wrote my column today saying like this virus is officially... It can get you whether it gets you or not. That's the point here. Like you can have massive fatal consequences from coronavirus without contracting coronavirus. That's where we're at now. Something happens to you and you die waiting. My mom needed her leg repaired in Kamloops and it happened, I don't know, day or two after, after it It was supposed to happen the next day. She ended up getting bumped because of a couple emergencies, which happens at a hospital, but she had it first thing the next, the second day after her, after her accident. I heard on the radio when I got back, like, I don't know if it was just like coincidence or whatever, but it just felt like I felt like I've lived in the matrix lately. So all of this stuff seems crazy to me, but they came on the radio and started telling us how, like, start saying how, like, if you have a broken leg that needs a surgery at medicine at hospital right now you're not going to get it like days and days of laying there in pain and i was like that's literally the surgery that she had to have in cameras like i can't like we've been very like aware of covid right we've tried to be the voice of reason we've tried to tell people that yes it's as bad as we say it is like even i am more like fucked up by it than I ever was before because like this once you have somebody that you care about that goes into hospital there's a million things you grapple with some of it are like fuck I hope my mom doesn't catch COVID while she's in there but other other things are like honestly it's weird and I don't mean it like this because she deserves her care but you almost feel guilty because you're taking up resources that are so desperately stretched thin right So it's just like, that's how every minute of my life has been for two weeks was just like, not only are you worrying about your parents' well-being, but you're just sitting there like, this is acutely aware of the hospital crisis in Alberta over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And that is not even pale in comparison to what it must be like to work in a fucking hospital right now. Yeah. Right. No, for sure. And I'm, I'm glad your parents are on the mend. I actually met them for the first time. Uh, yeah. Like not long at, before the uh, accident, right? Like I guess a month ago mm-hmm. when you were down. Yeah. Right. When you came to visit in like early, it was Labor Day weekend. Yeah. And they, they, uh, yeah. I mean, so it really, it was only like a couple of weeks before their accident when it happened. I, again, like, you know, so lucky and we try to focus on that but i mean it just really opens your eyes to so many things that are going on and then like if you didn't feel gut ache for these cancer patients you hear about that are losing out on their surgeries 
or organ fucking transplant patients who can't get an organ. Like we're in fucking Canada, man. Canada, Alberta, Canada has to be one of the richest jurisdictions on planet earth. And we're fucked by this thing. That is like an awful way to start this episode, which is totally going to be such a great episode. Uh, and uh, hopefully a little bit of a reprieve from just talking about COVID over and over again, because we do have uh, a pretty cool guest, especially for our Calgary listeners, I think today, but um, I really think Albertans should pay attention to this because I think we can all agree that who becomes Calgary and Edmonton's next mayor matters a lot. And if you're a forgotten corner listener, you probably already know that the United Conservative government is a trash heap and that their half of their goal is to download everything onto the cities. Our two biggest cities are going to need somebody willing to stand up and fight for them. So we're really excited to be able to speak to one of those candidates for Calgary's uh, mayoral race today. And uh, in fact, a front runner possibly uh possibly calgary's next mayor so should we get to the show yeah i think we should okay all right let's do it the following episode of the forgotten corner might seem a little calgary centric but if you're albertan you know the fight is coming for municipalities as our provincial government continues to download costs and responsibilities who calgary chooses for its next mayor will have a ripple effect that reaches every corner of the province including the forgotten one as her name might suggest, Jody Gondek hopes to be Calgary's light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Gondek is a front runner among nearly 30 candidates vying to be the next mayor of Alberta's largest city. She has been the city councillor for Ward 3 since 2017, where she has tried to use her extensive experience in business and community to help Calgary manage an ever-shifting future. Gondek says she's the best voice for Calgary because she understands that government works best if its members realize everyone is just a human being trying to accomplish good things. I guess she doesn't visit the legislature very much. The Forgotten Corner is pleased to welcome Ms. Gondek to the show this week, where we hope to dig into her vision for a better Calgary and perhaps see how she became the city's best hope for avoiding four years of Farkas. Ms. Gondek, welcome to the Forgotten Corner. Well, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. So um, we want to get right in. I know you've got uh, lots on your plate these days with the election roaring in, but as we always do before we get to anything platformy or issues wise, when we have someone on their forgotten corner, we talk about them, we get dig a little bit into their history. So you've probably done this a few times in, in recent months, so this might be easy for you, but we need the Jody Gondek life story a little bit. So I know that you, uh, you, 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 are first, uh, you were either born in Manitoba or moved to Manitoba from the UK with your family. And, uh, I'll leave it there and let you go. Sure. Yeah. Let's try to take you through a whirlwind. I was four years old in England and my parents decided that Canada offered us better opportunities. So in 1973, they looked at a map and said, you know what? Winnipeg looks really central and away we went. And so we landed in Winnipeg. Um, my dad ended up working with the land title system. So we moved around a lot. We lived in Winnipeg, Nipua, Brandon, Portage. And uh, when I graduated high school in Brandon, Manitoba, I decided that I needed to be much more cosmopolitan. So I went to UBC for a couple of years. I lived in Vancouver, had a great time, really enjoyed the urban experience. But as one does at 19, I spent more time exploring and not enough in the classroom. Uh, so I burned through my grades and my money and came back home to finish <laughs> up school, uh, finished my BA in Winnipeg. I was working on my master's when I was offered a job with the government of Manitoba to be a policy analyst with the division that funds women's shelters. And that was a pretty um, formative first step in my career. It taught me that if you're serving people in positions of extreme vulnerability, you have to lead with humility and compassion. And I've always carried that with me. So from there, I got married and uh, my husband said, you know what, we're moving to Wainwright. <laughs> so there we went, uh, got to Alberta. And uh, from there, I was offered an opportunity in Calgary in 1997 to work with Credit Union Central of Alberta. And that's when we moved here. 
And so it's been 24 years in Calgary. I have worked for Credit Union Central. I have worked with Greyhound Canada. I ran my own company for 12 years. It was called Tick Consulting, as in what makes you tick. I tried to specialize in corporate social responsibility plans for various organizations in the energy sector, home builders, land developers. And it was in the course of doing that work that I understood how contentious the relationship was between the private sector that was building communities and the local government that was the regulator. And so it became my mission to try to, to make the two sides see that life would be better if they could collaborate. And so I volunteered in my community association. I volunteered on the board of Urban Land Institute. I spent four years on Calgary Planning Commission as a citizen member so I could really dig in and understand the processes and policies that needed to be changed. Went back to school. I got um, a PhD in urban sociology so that I could actually advise on the experiences of cities that had future-proofed themselves. And so after all of this, I was working at the Haskane School of Business, creating a commercial real estate degree program. I realized that I had spent a decade trying to influence city building from the outside, and maybe it was time to get a seat at the table. And so looking back on my qualifications and my experiences and the time I had put in, I ran in 2017. And the good people of Ward 3 said, please go and represent us. Let's get some good stuff done. And it's been four years of an amazing journey in public service. We have managed to get an expansion for our recreation center, which is worth $22.5 million, very big deal. And we've done some little things, like we've managed to get stripes on our streets so our kids can get across the street safely to school. And all of it has been amazing because I've worked with my communities. And that's what I've signed up to do again from a leadership position. So before, I, before we ask you sort of what made you decide after one term as a city councilor to run for mayor, I, uh, a lot of your education was sociology based. And then I, I noticed you just did this like such a wide array of different uh, jobs, it seems. Uh, maybe tick seems like it kind of coincides with your that a lot more. But um, what... <clears throat> What got you into, I guess, what made you interested in sociology, I, I suppose I'll ask, and then uh, like sort of the trajectory of the different jobs you were doing, was it just, what, were how did that come uh, sort of play with what you were doing in those roles, what your education was? It's a really good question. And um, frankly, the first job that I had in the private sector, they looked at my resume and said, wow, that's weird. Um, <laughs> that is not the skill set we would have ever looked for, but right. you know, you, you, you seem like a nice kid. Let's give you a shot. And so what I was able to do was transfer the ability to analyze data, to communicate effectively and to think critically into a business position. And I think that's the thing that we sometimes miss. We're so committed to looking for a candidate who's got a very specific degree, whether it's you know engineering or it's geology or it's you know something in the tech sector that we forget there are people trained in the social sciences who have mad skills that could be put to good work in those sectors. And their thinking is always focused on how people intersect with the thing that they're doing. And so for me in city building, it's the intersection of people in the places that we create for them that makes it so exciting for me. So um, I've always been an advocate of the social sciences. I managed to make it work professionally. And that's one of the things that I promote with a lot of people who are graduating. So regardless of what happens in the election then, because see, I've been talking a lot lately just on the COVID side of things. I really want to bring somebody who's like really focused in sort of like human behavior. The so like, well, you, you should come back on the show and talk about uh, the sociology behind what we've just witnessed among people over the last 19 months, but that's another podcast altogether. So moving on to why you uh, decided to run for mayor. I mean, you had a nice gig with Ward 3. You said you were getting some things done. Um, I know uh, Mr. Nenshi has decided to move on and there we needed a, a new mayor one way or another, but um, what decided, uh, what made you decide to take that leap forward? There were three things really. Um, when I sat down in December of 2020 to think about what was next, I realized that we had just begun the process of budget reform. And that was something I really started digging into in 2018 and 2019. And when I realized that we weren't getting a proper revenue picture, we weren't actually being advised on what our projected property assessed value would be. 
So you couldn't determine how much you could anticipate to bring in when you were setting an operating budget. That to me was a major flaw in the system. So just starting to change the way we look at budgets and changing the way we look at capital budgets. I think we've got a lot of projects in our capital budgets that are dated and we need to reconsider them. So that heavy financial work is something that I worried would not be carried forward in a meaningful way without someone there who had the experience to unpack what we were doing and provide a different solution moving forward. Second thing that we started in my term on council is the idea of corporate culture shift and encouraging members of administration to do things differently and not be punished if they failed in that particular venture. Um, council can be a very, very difficult place to present an idea that didn't work. And we have a history of saying, well, you know, that was ridiculous. Why did you do it that way? I really want administration to feel like they can be nimble and responsive, come to us with ideas. And when they don't work, we just figure out how to make them better next time. And the third one was incredibly personal. I had thought about those two things, realized that I wanted to run again. And then at the end of December, roughly the 20th, it was that first big anti-mask rally that we saw on the steps of City Hall. And the soldiers of Odin and the Proud Boys were out in their full colors. Um, I couldn't believe that these people thought they could march in our streets and say to people like me that I don't belong here. I want to say it shocked me. It didn't. It hurt me. And I remember saying, I feel broken. I posted about it. And I walked away. I was absolutely devastated that that was happening here. And when I came back to social media, there were so many messages saying, we understand how you feel. We can't give up now. And that was it. That's when the light went on and I thought, I have to do this. And so I talked to my family um, and I talked to some people who I consider to be good mentors. And I built a team and announced on January 13th that I was running for mayor because we need someone to represent this city in a way that demonstrates we are not stuck in the past, that we are progressive and we are welcoming and inclusive. And so that was it. You said that it, it, it shocked you or it didn't shock you. It bothered you, but it didn't shock you. So to people, like when people hear those things in Alberta and they stand up and they say like, this is not my Alberta. What do you think? Like, what does that mean when you hear that? Because it clearly is our Alberta in a lot of ways. And um, sometimes I feel like we sweep it under the rug by pretending that like, oh, that's not in my Alberta. Well, I, and I've said that this is not my Calgary and people get very upset and they, they fire right back at me. Yes, it is. Why don't you accept that it is your Calgary? And yeah, it is. It's not the Calgary I want it to be. This is not the place that welcomed me and said, let's give you a chance. That was a very different time. Uh, we have now created some sort of emboldened movement that feels it can be full of hate, that it gets to dictate who belongs and who doesn't. And that's not what I signed up for when I moved here. And I will use every ounce of my energy to stamp that out and make sure that people continue to feel like they belong here because this is an amazing city. Uh, this election is uh, interesting for many reasons, but uh, one of which is the uh, <clears throat> three city councillors who are running for mayor, uh, three front runners or two and a half front runners, um, are all rookie counselors so i mean and i mean you touched on this briefly but i guess as someone who had only been on council one term was there some like hesitance in uh for that reason and putting forward your name for mayor there was a lot of thought that went into my decision uh, it wasn't one that i made lightly um, and I think it's important to remember that I also spent four years before getting on council doing various things that were related to council's um, responsibilities. So four years on planning commission teaches you a lot about policies and um, how to make good decisions that are within a bylaw and how to challenge when a bylaw does not serve the citizens. I also spent time on a task force that was looking at how to better engage with community associations. I spent time on the technical advisory committee for accessibility. So I made it my business to understand how a city is governed well. Um, I was also the co-facilitator of the Community Housing Affordability Collective. So the things that I did in my volunteer time and in my professional career in the time leading up 
to my council position really made me well equipped to hit the ground running to use a tired term. And so when I think about all of that, I've actually got 14 years of experience in and around council that I am now bringing to this run. You um, have in the past described yourself as uh, completely a centrist. Um, there, I, I saw a Twitter thread of yours uh, last year um, about how you used to be a conservative, uh, quite involved in uh, the conservative movement, not, not, not just like small C conservatives, but like the reform party. Uh, and then you became disillusioned with that. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about uh, sort of how you got involved with the conservative movement and how you drifted away from it. So what's interesting about my involvement in politics is that my dad always wanted me to be more engaged. And I remember always saying to him that ah, that doesn't interest me, not something I'm going to do. And when he passed away, very unfortunately, in 2003, uh, he left a couple of projects undone. And I remember picking them up from the files on his desk and thinking, he would have loved to have finished this. So maybe, maybe I need to get involved. And so I did. Um, I finished up a project that he started on, you know, talking to the Calgary Board of Education on how you could teach what religion is in a public school system without actually teaching that religion. So it was a, it was a pleasure to go and talk to um, professionals in education about that. And then another one that I know was a passion of his was to make sure that Punjabi became a second language option. And I remember doing so much research on the curriculum in BC, which managed to accomplish this. And so I worked with his friends. I worked with a bunch of seniors in the community and got these things done. And it was through meeting them and through doing this community work that I realized what my dad was saying is get politically engaged so you can bring about good change, not necessarily formally through a party. And so I got involved in municipal, municipal politics in 2007. I volunteered on a campaign for someone who had you know, been at the table when the Reform Party was started and had been a staunch conservative his whole life. And so it wasn't that I was a member of Reform or you know, big C conservatives, but I helped a candidate who had been. And I got to know a lot of that crew of people. And they seemed committed to something that was um, important in terms of community building. They wanted to make sure that government was serving the people well. And so that's why I volunteered on that campaign. And then I got asked to volunteer on a couple of nomination races. And that's when everything fell apart. Um, I was asked to please not worry about translating brochures or figuring out how we would appeal to um, different ethnic groups. And I was advised at that time that what you do with the ethnics is put them on a bus, tell them who to vote for, and then buy them a drink. And I looked at this individual who's you know, quite senior and popular in these circles, considered an amazing strategist, which I would argue is not a fact, and said, what do you do with the educated ethnics then? You know, quite tongue in cheek. And he said, there aren't any. And so I looked at the candidate who happened to be a person of color and said, are you kidding? And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. This is how people get elected. And I said, well, I'm out. And that was it. Well, that was the that was also when he was in the Harper government, uh, Jason Kenney's strategy, right? Yep, and I don't care for that. And so you moved to the center of the political spectrum more, um, but you're you know the the perception, and I think how you're also billing yourself is you're the progressive choice for mayor, um. You know, especially in contrast with uh, Mr. Farkas and Mr. Davison. Um, but given your your background in conservative politics, uh, why should progressives support you for mayor and not, um, you know, Jan Damery or, um, you know, someone else? This is what I find interesting about labels. Um, as soon as you label somebody, it's easy to decide whether you like them or not. And it's very easy to decide that you um, can't side with their politics instead of digging into what it is that this person has done and what it is that they're bringing forward. I think the progressive label is equally polarizing as the conservative label. And um, I am very good at annoying people on both sides of the spectrum. So that's why I consider myself a centrist. Uh, there's appeal and annoyance from both sides. And I think the most important thing to remember in a municipal government is that you're making decisions in a very specific context 
at a very specific point in time. And if you are stuck in those ideologies and you're making decisions based on being left or right leaning, you're not serving the population. So that's why I consider myself a centrist because when I go to make a decision, I am looking at the evidence, I'm looking at who we're serving and I'm looking at the best way to accomplish the goal and not getting stuck on being left or right. But at the same time, uh, you know, we as a society are facing all these crises that I, you acknowledge are, are uh, uh, need to be addressed, like climate change, like systemic racism. Um, but how would you respond to those who say that you can't, when faced with these types of like massive uh, life or death issues that you can't be neutral, that um, more radical change is needed. And you, you see it on the right with the rise of, you know, as you mentioned, these racist elements. And then the left is calling for much bolder solutions to these issues. So, so sort of how, how, like, how do you respond to the idea that these, these sort of technocratic, like, uh, sort of policy by policy uh, fixes uh, aren't sufficient in that, um, you know, more uh, bold uh, left-leaning um, strategy is what's needed. So that's interesting. Your definition of centrist is someone that sits on the fence. That's what I'm picking up from you. And so you've labeled someone who's a centrist in a very specific way. I would argue that being in the center means that you're stable and steady and able to go in the direction that you need to, depending on the situation. I've already said that one of the first things we need to do is declare a climate crisis. And why do we need to do that? Because it's a fact, because we need to take some action, because we need to do something. But let me tell you, as soon as you do that, you have the opportunity to invite in a lot of capital that flows from people who believe that doing the right thing for the environment is somewhere that they want to invest their dollars. So if you look at the big picture of why you should do things, it's never for one reason. It's always for a multitude of reasons. And if you actually believe in the concept of, you know, the three pillars of social responsibility or ESG or whatever you want to call it, if you are making strong decisions through a resilience lens, what does this mean from an economic, social and environmental perspective? You will make the right decision at every turn. And I think we like our politicians to be either socially aware or fiscally aware. And we forget that human beings and the world is an incredibly complicated place. And frankly, I have the ability to walk and chew gum. I have the ability to understand that a strong labor force that is supported well will result in a strong economy. So that's why I'm not gonna pick a lane or pick a side because my job is to travel that path to make sure that we are incorporating all of the ideas needed to do the right thing. And when you label somebody, you stop listening to them. You assume that they're going to do things in a certain way. And that's not what municipal politics is about. So, so let me pose you a question in a different way, because I agree with you. Like, as soon as we start, start talking about the spectrum, it's a conversation stopper anyway. So, <clears throat> but how I would like, here's how I view personally uh, certain conservative politicians or governments or ideologies that we have in our province, our country, Western world. Basically, there's a line where solving a problem becomes just too expensive. Like every problem has a price and that price somehow effing matters to a certain faction of our population when we're talking about, I don't know, climate change or COVID or homelessness or inequality or any of these things. And so what I would ask anyone, whether they identify left, right, or centrist is when does, when do some of these socioeconomic issues we face, when do some of these insane crises we face What's the line where they become too expensive? When, when does fiscal responsibility matter when we're talking about uh, human life? Fiscal responsibility is an interesting concept in a government because people that speak that language tend to think that you should always um, 
save as much money as possible, cut as many programs as you can and operate with the lowest possible budget. That's not actually what government is for. Government is there to fill the gaps of all the things that the private sector cannot. I mean, government is there to make sure that we are protecting our people. Government is there to make sure that when people are in positions of vulnerability that we're able to help them out. So when people look at fiscal responsibility and cry that you know we can't help everyone, I guess my argument back would be, what does it cost? What is the actual dollars and cents cost of having to send out a member of the Calgary Police Service every time we have a mental health call? What is the cost of incarcerating someone for a petty crime? What is the cost of putting someone in shelter who is experiencing homelessness? And instead, what would the cost be if you actually invested in proper housing, something that's dignified and invested in those support services that respond to the crisis or trauma that that individual experienced. You know, what would you save overall in the system? How much would you save in healthcare? How much would you save in all of the things that go along with having to take care of somebody that's in a position of vulnerability? And I don't think we look at both sides of that equation. Why, why do you think, I mean, I agree with you. This is how we talk to Albertans. Like I write a column in which I like generally try to find the thing that will make a medicine hatter agree with what I'm saying, like as far as how much it might save to help a homeless person or how much it might save to actually like have healthy people instead of this, that, or the other thing. But I, there seems to be a disconnect. Like we're in the middle of like the worst tragic time in all of our lifetimes. Like it's not even arguable right now. And like, I just see there's this disconnect between people like there's always they always need to know like how much it will affect their pocketbook or whatever and i guess the way i look at a government is governments are always telling us how they're going to support the economy and i i want to know how they're going to protect us from it does that make sense makes total sense and you know what the way you support the economy is to support the people that make the economy move right so uh, this is the thing that that cracks me up when people say the market won't bear that or that's not what the market wants the market is the people we right. we are the market we created that demand so if you don't understand your power as a consumer then you're missing the entire purpose of what you're here for and i mean let's look at let's look at how economies have shifted over time Let's look at the 80s when people started to say, I don't think it's good that we're just tossing all of these plastics out. You know, let's look at reduce, reuse, recycle. Where did that start? That did not start with corporations. We did not ask them to limit the amount of plastic they were using. We went to the consumer and said, you're the problem. You're the one that needs to reduce, reuse, and recycle. So we're very good at blaming the consumer and asking them to shift their behavior. We're very bad at asking the market to change what it's doing. So I think you have to remember that only human beings are going to shift the way that we view the economy. And I think we started to make some pretty bold moves in that sense. I mean, if you look at a company like Benevity, which really grew up in Calgary, there are people that believe that the economy can be stronger if you're practicing social good. There's, there's a company in Calgary called Avatar Innovations. They just, without any help from any government, started up the Center for Energy Transition right downtown in the Ampersand building. They are doing a carbon removal accelerator project. And none of us know anything about it because we're not talking about these big, bold moves that people are making because we're stuck in nostalgia. Calgary in particular, we are so stuck in nostalgia and a desire for history to come back and just one the more The good old boom. days. Yeah, one more boom and I won't screw this one up. Let's get over it. Nostalgia will not move us forward, but let's take the history we have, you know, and this is how you get people to come along. Yes, we were strong in energy production and that's great, but we also learned lessons from it. So let's invite people here now that have innovative ideas and are willing to use technology to make things cleaner and greener and more sustainable. Why wouldn't we want to own that place? I wanted to ask, since we, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, the climate crisis and sort of solutions to it. Um, shortly after the city uh, passed its uh, climate plan, uh, council voted to approve 14 new um, suburban communities, uh, which you voted in favor of. Um, 
how how does that square with the city's climate goals and also the the need to uh support density both of which i know you're a supporter of so that is an interesting question and the narratives that we tell ourselves are always striking to me 14 new communities did you know that one of those new communities, let's call it that, is actually rebuilding Simons Valley Ranch, which caught fire and burned to the ground. That's considered one of those 14 new communities. Um, I have communities in, I'm in a point over here in North Central Calgary that started and never got finished. And when I was elected in 2017, my mandate was to grow North Central Calgary. Remember when they changed the wards? So Ward 3 has about 60,000 people and they want to grow it to 120. That was the decision that council made. So let's look at what a strange position that puts me in. You get elected to grow this area and then you're told don't grow it. So I can tell you that the reason that I voted in favor of some of those business cases is because communities like Harvest Hills, Panorama Hills, Coventry Hills, those communities were promised better transit connections they were promised the ability to be able to get over Stony Trail uh, using a pedestrian you know, uh, system that was not dangerous. Right now, we've got a little dirt goat track that we have to use if we want to cross Stony Trail by foot. Um, and there was a community service levy that was supposed to help fund the expansion of Vivo. Did you know that all of those things were tied to growth? I don't think a lot of people know that. The only way that existing communities in some of these outlying areas were going to get the infrastructure investments they've been promised is if growth was approved. And no one knew that. In 2015, when council brought in what they call the offsite levy, all of those major infrastructure projects are embedded in an appendix. There's no capital coming from the city to pay for those things. It's all coming from the private sector and it only gets unlocked if we take on growth. So it's an impossible situation for a community like Harvest Hills that took on redevelopment of a golf course. It was incredibly contentious. And council said, we will give you amenities. We will give you more if you take on density. But they locked it into growth. That was the major issue. You'd agree there's an inherent tension there, right? Always. Yeah. Always. And, you know, I'm going to put something else out there. Most of us are aware of the community of Curry, right? The former Curry Barracks site. It's gorgeous. It is a mixed use community. There is mixed model housing. It is beautiful. If I blindfolded you and stuck you in the middle of Livingston, you would think you were in Curry. And Livingston is in the far north central part of Calgary. It is beautiful. It is mixed use. It is density done right. It's incredible, but it's right next to Stony Trail. So it gets discounted for being a really good and sustainable community. Now, if it had an actual employment hub near it, I think it would probably deliver on sustainability goals much better than it can right now, but we won't approve the piece of land immediately beside it for growth. So that tension, yeah, you're right, because we don't look at things in the context. We look at them overall as 14 communities. Um, quickly, I wanted to ask about the arena deal because okay. you supported the original deal, July, 2019. Um, city drops the calgary municipal land corporation as the project manager in exchange for or at least ostensibly in exchange for uh the flames taking on uh all the additional costs or most of the additional costs uh why so what is is why is that a significant enough difference from the original deal to uh, change your position on it? The original deal in 2019 was one that I supported because I felt that there was benefit to Calgarians and I felt that there was public realm improvements that would make life better for people that were living around that area. I thought it offered a lot of opportunity for people to engage with the Rivers District. And the fact that Calgary Municipal Land Corporation was going to be in charge of the development gave me a sense of comfort that the project would be delivered you know, again, another tired term on time and on budget, um, but they have a track record of doing so. The new central library is a perfect example of a project that is gorgeous and well done. When we received the new deal at 1.30 in the afternoon in the middle of a four-day council meeting, I was not impressed. 
So if I'm the decision maker on this new deal and it just got tossed to me in the middle of a council meeting and I'm gonna be making a decision on it within the next day or two, as we're going through 36 public hearing items and everything else that was on the agenda, what kind of time is that for me to review this and make a thoughtful decision? And never mind me, what kind of time is that for citizens to look at it and say, yeah, that sounds good. No one had any time to review it. I don't know why it had to be dropped in that way. We went, I think it was February or March when we realized that we were pumping the brakes on this thing. So in that five or six months, could we not have seen iterations of what was going to happen? Like you, you just had to drop it at the 11th hour. And I will tell you the thing that concerns me the most. Not only was I unimpressed that Calgary Municipal Land Corporation would be gone, I was equally unimpressed that there was this bizarre appendix that was now going to be added to the deal for a, let me find the words, I think mobility and transportation plan or no event management and mobility yeah, plan. Another, yeah, yeah, yeah. another 10 million bucks. From 10 million bucks, yeah. Why are we paying for that? And what does this actually mean? Event management and mobility. What that signals to me is that any of the infrastructure that influences the deal, like the roadways, are going to be the responsibility of the city. And I'm not down with that. The reason we wanted to locate the event center here is because it was an urban project. It was one that was easily accessed by train, by foot. If we are now gonna ask to expand all of our roadways for free flow personal vehicle traffic. That's not what we signed up for in the first place. That appendix worries me more than anything. And I asked a question. I said, so all this business of every cost overrun will now be taken on by Calgary Sports and Entertainment Corporation. Is that the building or the project? And I got a very bizarre answer. Because at first it was the whole project. And then it was, well, the building of the project. And so I can tell you, CSEC is probably responsible for cost overruns for that building, but the city will be on the hook for any infrastructure improvements in and around that place. And that is not a good deal. Wouldn't, why wouldn't offsite levies uh, pay for that? There's no offsite levies there. Oh, I see. So offsite yeah. levies are offsite like levies only apply to Greenfield. Oh, okay. So I have one. I have I have one. It's half a two-parter, I guess. What uh, our best friend of the show, our resident expert, uh, Doctor Roberta Lexter from Mount Royal University, uh, said I should ask you something about uh, sort of um, being a female among a, sort of a male-dominated field in Calgary, and that would sort of tie into my question, I guess. Is and I assume you're perfectly uh, aware of what you're getting into, but do you have any? Is, are any of your family members or anything concerned at all? about what you know that faction of Albertans and Calgarians that uh, are going to meet you vocally and uh, with vitriol when and if you become the mayor of Calgary because there will be that for a woman of color well I mean my family has now been exposed to all of these things my kid now knows what the c-word is I wasn't planning for that at 16 um you know so they know they know what we're in for and we have had some very real conversations about what it looks like for us as a family. And it's, uh, it hurts. I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm, I'm not gonna say, what well, you need to develop a thick skin and let everything bounce off you. That's, that's a load of crap. It's not no, one has, yeah. no one has skin that thick. Every time someone launches a personal attack on you, you feel it. What you choose to do with that is what makes you get through this or breaks you down. And I have incredible compassion for people who get broken by politics. It's, um, it's a lot. So I guess I would say this. If I stepped away from this now and said it's too much and it's too hard, then what message am I sending? That we don't have anyone who will persevere and push? I'm not sending that message. I'm here to win. And I'm here to win because I'm qualified and I care about the city. And so the package that I come in, if it's distasteful to someone, then, you know, all apologies. But this is it. What you see is what you get. Pretty straightforward. And if you can't deal with a woman being in a decision-making position, then you have other options. And what happens to Calgary in, at the municipal level? Is it your biggest issue at that point? I'm thinking if, if that's your problem. But I, it's just Alberta voting. for you. I mean, that's unfortunately, like, that's something that... 
uh, women in Alberta politics have to face on a pretty uh, regular level. But I mean, I, I you obviously um, know what you're getting into, and I was so that's good. Now, another thing that you're going to be getting into. My last question for you is: uh, you're going to have to deal with uh, the province, and I know that uh, everybody so. All the, all the, I don't want to say the good candidates. I don't want to come across like I'm endorsed you, but all the best polit, all the politicians that you might vote for always say like, oh, I want to work with everybody, and it's best that we all get along. And it, that's there's so many people that aren't going to be like that. And I guess your opponent to me, your, your main opponent in, at Calgary seems to me like he's going to rub elbows pretty hard with the government, and they're going to be pally pally. I don't think that's a very I personally don't know that that's a very good position for municipalities to take with the United Conservatives are what approach from from a Calgary perspective do you expect from uh, to be having to take with the provincial government uh, do you have a relationship with Jason Kenney at all right now and are you uh, do you have any sort of like I don't want to call them delusions but ideas that like maybe uh, they'll be easy to work with. Um, let me say this. I have worked with different provincial governments over time. I worked in a provincial government in Manitoba and I had to engage with a lot of different stakeholders. Um, as a member of that government, I made it my business to find mutually beneficial solutions for the people we served. Uh, when I was at the university, I had to work with the provincial government to get the degree programs approved. I found it to be a very collegial relationship. Um, my first couple of years on council, same thing. I was able to get meetings with senior administrators, with ministers, with you know people that we needed to talk to to get things done for Calgarians. And then bam, we hit this brick wall. So I would challenge people who say, you know, you need to be willing to build a good relationship. I'm all in for that. I am happy to build a good relationship. I have made the phone calls, I've sent the messages. And I'm still waiting for any kind of a response. So to build a relationship, it must be a two-way street. And I don't have that right now. So my option is to sit quietly and let them make decisions on our behalf, like dumping $13 million of a police budget on us in a downturn economy, like dumping what will be probably $20 million to put fluoride in the water when it's actually a public health issue. Um, and dumping, I don't know how many millions of dollars on our government because they don't feel like maintaining the affordable housing that they're responsible for. So if Calgarians want me to sit quietly and take all of that and just increase your taxes and say, I'm sorry, that's what the province said, then I'm not your candidate. If you want a candidate that fights back and says, why am I sending you 40% of our property taxes when you're actually not doing anything with it that's benefiting you know, my citizens, then you need someone who will fight for that. And that's what I'm prepared to do. And if we have not learned through COVID that this particular party is not interested in governing or showing any kind of leadership, if we haven't clued into the fact that not a single member of that government has any remorse over the number of people that are dying every day from COVID, then I don't think we're ever gonna wake up. Andy. I guess we have time for one more question. Uh, this one's this one's a quick one. Uh, are you in, in going to endorse anyone uh, for Ward Three, your former ward that uh, has quite a few candidates in it? Um, I, I, I suspect there are a couple that um, could maybe uh, you know align with what you're trying to do at City. So, uh, do you have an endorsement? I don't have an endorsement. What I have told um, the people that live in Ward 3 who have asked me that question is that I am very grateful for the, the candidates that put their name forward because I think we have some strong options. And that's all I can ask for is that the citizens of Ward 3 have very strong options to choose from. There are people running that I would be happy to work with. And so do your research, figure out whose values align with yours, and vote well, because you know everyone's focused on the mayoral election, which is, it is a big deal. I mean, this is probably the biggest municipal election in a generation, so choose a mayor wisely. At the same time, don't forget, I'm one vote on council. I have to work with 14 other people and we better make sure we get some committed, passionate, 
strong, skilled people in those positions so that we can move things forward for the city. But why not endorse someone who shares your vision? I mean, you're going to vote for someone, presumably. Um, You know, why not uh, let voters know, uh, you know, which candidate most aligns with your values? I think that's undue influence on my part. I think the voters of Ward 3 are incredibly intelligent and incredibly committed to a strong community, and they will choose wisely. And I will respect the decision they make. I mean, you got to admit, she's... So a decently polished answer. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a good answer. Um, I mean, she knows who she's going to vote for. She's not telling us, and that's fair. Yeah, that's I, fair. yeah. Um, Scott, did you have anything? No, no, I was just thinking, like, we're doing that typical journalist thing where we're just like, one more question? Yeah, just one more. And then one more. And then one more. But anyway. Well, you got um, to ask follow-up. Well, you just keep going. I mean, I could talk all day. Like, I... I mean, there's so much to talk about. Like, I think like it's insanity how many candidates there are. And that's got to be like, I don't know. I wish like there could be like a pre like a preliminary where like 23 of them drop off the map after a vote and then the other ones get to go head to head. But that's another podcast. I would say like a third of them are like literally insane. (laughs) Am I in that count? No, yes, no, that's right. No, I wouldn't. Uh, but you know, they're they're maybe not a third, but there are a few, uh, a few of them, maybe more than a few, who are a bit out there, if you know what I mean. Right, right. Um, no, I so, anyways, I think we're good. Like, I, um, I think she has lots, she's given us lots, and she has time, she has things she has to get to. Yeah, Saturday. for sure. Let her uh, have like one last Saturday with her family. You'll have no. to come. My family has abandoned me. I'm actually, I have to record a bunch of stuff right now. And then I have to hit three literature drop sites and four meetings. Okay. Yeah. So anyways, that sounds even, that sounds awful. But anyways, like, anyways, for anybody that wants to run out and uh, run for mayor, you know, just listen to the last 15 seconds. Sounds, sounds like it'd be a fun, uh, fun job to get to. Anyways. It is fun. You know what? I'm going to tell you this. It is literally bonkers every day that I look at my schedule and my calendar and I don't look you know a week in advance because it would make me want to crawl into bed and sleep because there's so much to do but you would be amazed at how many things you can take in in this city and how many people you can meet if you're actually committed to getting out there and doing it and that's what I love I love being able to talk to Calgarians and figure out what it is that they want from the future of the city and that's why I keep doing this. I'm honestly in this because I love this work. I, I just want to say I, I greatly appreciate that you didn't once use the phrase uh, live, work, play. Oh. Um, while we were talking, that it, um, makes my skin crawl. I also don't think I used ecosystem. No, you didn't, but I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I, it but, depends on um, how you use it, I think. You need to, do you have a three, do you have, do you have a one, like three, one word sentence slogan for your campaign? Cause that's, that yeah. works in Alberta, that plays. I'm not into slogans. You know what the best slogan is? Please vote for me. <laughs> I thought you were going to do Aaron O'Toole where he was like, we don't do slogans. And then just throw out like seven slogans in a row and be like, I'm pretty sure those are slogans, Aaron. Anyway, um, listen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, good luck in the election. Um, it's going to be a crazy uh, race to watch. I've got my own um, race to watch as well back here in the forgotten corner, but uh, hopefully uh, there's time in the next four years. We can get back together and chat about how Calgary's going. Should you win this puppy and uh, good luck. And thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. And I'd be happy to come back anytime you need me. Appreciate yeah, it. You got to come on when you're mayor. Okay, done. Absolutely. Okay. Have a great Saturday. Good luck at all those freaking meetings. Anyways, yeah, take care. Thank you. <laughs> take care, you guys. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. This is the time in the show where we like to thank those of our patrons who go way above and beyond anything we could ever hope for to Darius Beregard, to Nicola De Nicola, to Dave Bonmiller, to Chris Derwold, and to Big Red Machine. You guys are amazing. Really appreciate all the support you guys bring to us, um, to all our listeners, to all our patrons. Couldn't do this without you. Uh, most sad because one of you out there gave us that first four star review. So now we've been knocked, knocked off our five star, uh, plateau on Apple. But, uh, I guess the more that you guys listen, the more that's going to happen. So that's probably a good thing too. Uh, it's 
great to be back and i can't wait to uh have a big fall for this show uh hopefully we will be booking lots of great guests for you and uh we'll see you guys next week take care